Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Nancy and I are discussing a webinar that we watched on World Horse Welfare, and it is titled, Can a Stabled Horse Truly Be Happy? So our main speaker or presenter of the um, webinar was Dr. Andrew McLean. And he, for anyone who hasn't listened to his webinars before, he is a brilliant author, journalist, scientist. Um, he's also been involved in event rising, show jumping, dressage, the Olympics. He's won numerous bareback races in Australia, New Zealand, and he's a member of the Racing Victoria Welfare Advisory Board and also a director of Pony Club Australia. So Andrew has a huge amount of experience in all things horses. Um, also, they had a panel at the very end to discuss questions. And on the panel was Brad Hill, who is an equine vet. Um in Nottingham Vet School, I believe it was. And he spent most of his career in first opinion, but now he's part of the equine teaching team and has experience in ambulatory and referral hospitals. Then the other person who was on the panel was Eileen Gillen. And Eileen joined World Horse Welfare over 30 years ago, has a background in training and instructing um, from basics to competition level and even did some work with stunt riders and horses which I think is fascinating and definitely a topic we should cover at some point Nancy. Absolutely. Um, Andrew discussed whether a horse can be happy or not when they're stabled and there were loads of different little nuggets in this that were really important. The first thing he does point out though is happiness you know, it's so subjective and it's difficult for us to tell whether a human is happy, let alone try and use that term in determining whether a horse is necessarily happy. He did say, however, as horses have become domestic animals, their habits have changed. So there is an argument that they could be happy enough in a stable, though he compared it, for example, to zebras and said a zebra unlikely wouldn't be happy to be kept in a stable. But there are elements that bring about, um, I suppose, this level of welfare and quality of life for stabled horses. And some of the interesting ones that really stood out is the fact that socialization is key. But socialization can easily be done in a stable setting, which was interesting. So Dr. McLean said in one example, he has a mirror that he is up and that plays a huge role in um, the horse's socialization and they'll interact with the mirror. And he even said he has to clean it multiple times a day because they go up and nose on it, which reminds me of my rescue dog who used to do that to the mirror in the house, go up and just press her nose against her own reflection. Um, but he also says about allowing horses to interact with each other through the stables 
So having this kind of unique, stable design where horses can reach in and touch each other and groom each other um, and are able to have that interaction. And this is different. I believe in one of our episodes, we discussed um, like an open barn system. So this is different because they still have their individual stalls. It just means they can actually reach over and touch each other through the stalls. Yeah, I thought the person that is the architect that designs these stables and these stalls, I mean, we've all seen the stalls with the bars that kind of um, have curves and then come down low where horses can touch one another between the stalls and all that. They're beautiful. It's beautiful work. But I thought the interesting thing was is that this all kind of comes back to friends, forage, and freedom. So these stalls are uh, large enough where an individual horse can walk around and then also be social with the next door neighbor. And they even questioned where if a horse is housed next to a horse that clearly stresses one the horse next to it, um, how you do you should make amends there and put a horse that they do get along with next door and i thought that was interesting because andrew said horses actually choose who they want to be quote friends with so um that would kind of go with the herd dynamic article we talked about the research that said um they choose their grooming mates. And, um, you know, that goes right along with if you observe herds long enough, you see that very few horses groom every horse in the herd. They have their friends, uh, if you can say that. They were also very cautious to against uh, anthropomorphic um words or indicators in this because happiness is um, the perception is subjective. So the only thing I can say is I had a racehorse come to my farm for rehab and it was clear the horse had never been turned out in a field. He was probably protected um, from a baby and Probably they didn't want him to get injured. Um, his breeding was, uh, you know, had storm cat in it. So they were probably uh, had a big investment in that horse. And when I brought him here, um, it, it was apparent he was much more comfortable in the stall. So what I had to do was make changes gradually because eventually we wanted him to be turned out with the herd. He had had airway surgery and it's not very uh, good rehab to uh, be recovering from that in a dusty barn. And you can have the cleanest barn in the world, but the horse barns are going to have dust in them just like hay is gonna have a little dust in them. And um, we wanted to make sure he had plenty of fresh air and movement. So I had to first go to a small pen 
by himself and letting there a couple of hours and then moving back into the barn and letting be in his stall. And then I eventually would turn him out for the afternoon with the herd. I mean, it was all such baby steps. It took a couple months to get this horse to even want to go in the pasture. And I think Eileen said it best when she said horses sometimes don't know their horses and we have to reacquaint them with who they are. Yeah, I think she had a great example of um, a group of colts that they had rescued and that that was the case. It was hard to get them to rehabituate because horses they do, and Andrew said this, which is a nice way to term it, they live in the moment. Um, so, again, it's easy for us to kind of put human uh, characteristics on that. You know, like horses don't reflect the way humans do. They tend to focus on the here and now, and stimulus is what drives the behavior. So whether it was a positive stimulus or a negative stimulus, um, one example is they were saying, if a horse has gotten a um, smack with a whip, then reapproaching the horse and holding the whip just behind your back is not going to necessarily trigger the horse to think it's going to have that outcome again. Mm-hmm. So it's about how they learn. I don't know if I definitely haven't said that as eloquently as Andrew did. But, I, um, I have to say Andrew is the best speaker. If anybody listens to the webinar, I used a lot of his research in my assessments at Edinburgh because they were even so well written. And then he speaks even very eloquently and uh, just you can really tell that's it's his passion to talk about whether elephants or horses He does it all so well, but I think what he was saying is their recognition memory is extremely good. So if they would recognize the whip, then that would give them the information that would be the stimulus for them to react. But their recall memory is not so good because they need that stimulus to help them recognize that memory. Did that say it? Like yeah, what- I, that's that's definitely better put than uh, how I was going to try and stumble through. <laughs> no, you did good. It was just so interesting to put it in those terms of recognition versus recall. It was made it so much clearer to me in that cognition process. Yeah, and they can habituate within their stables. Um, and he was saying that being able to reach each other. So like Nancy said, you may have to move them about. You may have to reposition kinds of the friend groups within the stable, but they they may have some arguments overall when you have this kind of more open plan where they can reach to each other and touch each other. You do have less instances of rearing or those kinds of behaviors because one person did ask that question what if they rear up and they catch a hoof on these lower, these kinds of dipped or curved bars that their heads are able to go over? But he said in the studies, they found they don't actually exhibit those behaviors because they're overall more content. And um, they were talking as well about how when they would return a horse from work to the stable, 
before going to food or water, the first thing the horse would do was go to say hello to its friends and have that social interaction. That was its priority every time it went back to the stable. And he also said, which I thought was a nice point, um, I suppose it's along the lines of you have to let kids be kids. (laughs) You have to let horses be horses and they might fight and they might bite each other. And he says, even for instance, when it comes to competitions, allowing horses to be around each other where possible is really important. And dressage judges really should move away from, you know, even taking note of whether there might be a bite mark on a horse. Because really, if a horse does have a bite mark, it's been out in a normal social circle where these things happen. You know, sometimes they do have run-ins with other horses in the herd. And he said to him that would signify that they're living, you know, a somewhat normal life, um, which I thought was a really interesting pointer because Brad also um, made a great point. So he was saying it can be very difficult in competition situations to want to allow your horse near another horse because of the cost of the horse and the fact that one kick can cause irreparable damage. Um, But they mentioned another researcher who said introducing horses even over a stable door for a couple of minutes can be enough to acquaint them that you won't have those microaggressions necessarily. So it was just really fascinating. There's lots that can be done. Um, They talked about just removing bars in a stable or being able to remove a part of a panel and just allowing the horses to be able to reach into each other. Yeah, I thought it was really good that he stressed over and over that seeing is not enough. It doesn't take the place of them being able to nose one another and to scratch one another at the base of the neck where that uh, vagal nerve connects. And that has been shown to lower a horse's heart rate by 10 beats per minute. So that, and that we can do that as riders and owners and trainers of horses is if you see them begin to get a little concerned or be a little stressed, just scratch that area on each side of the withers and, um, you know, you'll, you should be able to, um, you know, feel that heart rate coming down that tends to tell them in their own language, everything's okay. And I thought it was really great. They said that um, an Australian horse talks the same language, even to a German horse. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> they said the communication between horses doesn't differ. Um, by country which in some species it can slightly but um yeah I thought that was great I thought a great point as well that Brad had made was the mutual grooming that you mentioned so they'll groom that spot on each other at the base of the neck but mutual grooming is so vital and it has a huge effect on horses um and one of the so one of the kinds of tests that they did or I suppose changes they made was um, Andrew worked with a mounted police section and he had them remove the bars so that the horses could groom each other between the stables. Um, And they did have some initial more ruckus or carry on, I guess, 
but they did overall were much calmer on patrol than after. And they spent a great time of or deal of time in the stables touching. But what Brad pointed out was he has, I think, a Shetland pony in with a thoroughbred. And he was saying, when you look at it from that point of view, mutual grooming can't occur because the Shetlands can't groom the thoroughbred back. So there's a little bit of a welfare issue even on that point. I thought that was a great point because I think he said he had two Shetlands turned out with this thoroughbred and he it concerns him because he knows uh, he's missing a part of the puzzle there to their height difference. But um, the welfare part of it, they went over the five domains, which is nutrition, environment, health, behavioral interactions, and mental state. And welfare concerns come up through the communication and mental stimulation. And that can be, you know, between the horses in a turnout situation or in a unique stalled situation uh, from what Dr. McLean's talking about. And then they have to have foraging behavior. They always have to have movement and exercise. And then social behavior um, within a herd is so important to them. And, and that herd can just be another horse. So he said it's not the same to have a goat or a pig. It, it's got to be another horse. He goes, you know, it, it's okay if you don't have another horse. But he said it works much better if there's um, a companion there that is another horse. And then the care needs come under... Um, health, safety, shelter, nutrition, clean water, and clean living conditions. So I thought he did a great um, service to everyone by dividing that up into welfare versus uh, care. So um, that, that'll that be in the slideshow that he gives on this webinar. Highly recommend you guys um, watch it. And I know it's like an hour and a half long, but you could do it in 30-minute segments. Um, there is a country as well, Nancy, and I have Sweden in my head, but I'm not sure if that's correct. But they brought in a law where you can't just keep one horse anymore. Yeah. Um, it's They deemed it to not be welfare-friendly, so you must keep them in multiples. But... You made another point there about the exercise, actually, that they talked about. And I wanted to give this a mention because I've misinterpreted this in the past. So Andrew was saying when you let horses out to pasture um, and they may have been in for, I don't know, however long, but they come running out, they're jumping and springing about. He was saying this isn't happiness. And I think you see a lot of videos of this online. Um, and you see it sometimes as well with cattle who've been in the barn over winter and then they're being let out and they're springing about like, you know, <laughs> young bucks again. And we perceive this as happiness. But he said it's actually a rebound behavior because their body just has this burst of energy and they need to move and exercise and spring. And it's not necessarily them portraying excitement over being in the pasture. Yeah, because they're designed to move, whether it's 
you know, all the time they're designed to move. So um, it's kind of like when I need a spatula to get my thoroughbreds off the ceiling of the and too long, they got to move, you know, but I do have the howdy bars in my barn because um, when I worked at the St. Louis Zoo, we called the elephant yard had gates where they could feel one another. And we called them howdy doors. I did have that if you're interested in uh, more of Andrew McLean's uh, lectures and teaching, you can go to esi.education.com and he has books, DVDs, lectures. Uh, it's kind of like um, his website. So um, have a look at that. It's full of resources. And as we said, Andrew's great to listen to and such a wealth of knowledge. So if you haven't already, definitely have a YouTube, listen to one of his talks. And there's so much you can pick up from him. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all I had. And uh, Kate, thanks for recommending this. It, it was, uh, uh, you know, I learned a lot in uh, just listening to, to all three presenters. And what's neat is when Eileen talked about the Colts, it reminded me of um, the horse that came here for a throat rehab. And you same way with him. I call them hot house thoroughbreds where they don't really know they're a horse. And so it takes a little doing to kind of show them the way. And, um, you know, you have to take all the time that it takes because you can't rush it. Yeah, I think that's it. Just little changes that we can make um, and little modifications. It can make such a big difference. So one step at a time. Okay, well, thanks so much, and we'll see everybody next week. Thanks, Nancy. Take care. Bye-bye. You too.